You're listening to Shrink the Virus, a weekly podcast that explores the psychology of everyday life during the pandemic, hosted by two psychiatrists, Steve Allen and Rob Seltzer. Shrink the Virus is brought to you by Melbourne independent community media organisation, Triple R. Check out the Shrink the Virus podcast page on the Triple R website and on Facebook. And don't forget, you can financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber at any time. More details at rrr.org.au. And welcome to this week's episode of Shrink the Virus. I am Steve Allen and I'm here with my good friend... That's you, so you know. Rob Seltzer. Rob Seltzer. Okay. Who else? I know. Rob and Steve on Shrink the Virus. <laughs> hey, uh, before we get into a bit of banter, a bit of discussion, let's tell you who we've got on the show today. We have Professor Noel Woodford. Noel is the director of the Victoria Institute of Forensic Medicine and the head of the Department of Forensic Medicine at Monash University. So for those of you who've got an old memory, he's basically Quincy, as in Quincy <laughs> M.E., a medical examiner. He's a doctor who's a pathologist and has become the head of VIF and VI. IFM, which is essentially the medical arm of the coroner that investigates all the deaths that are unexpected or accidental or occur in institutions. He's an amazing guy, an old, old friend of mine, and uh, he's going to talk to us about how Victoria prepared for the pandemic and, you know, all that stuff about what do you do as the main forensic office in he's, Victoria he's leading nothing, into... He's nothing like Quincy, M.A. Jack he, Klugman. He doesn't live on a yacht. He should live on a yacht. <laughs> he's a, he's a fine-looking man. Not that Jack Wiggum isn't, but yeah. uh, well, it's, you know, it's probably going to be a bit of a... Yeah. Is, there's an age difference. Um, He's a great guy, though, and it's a great interview. We've already done it, of course. We're we have. We first. should tell people that it is actually Saturday, the 29th of August. We record the show oh, two days I before see. we publish it. Hey, you, Steve... You know what the other... Before you go into anything, the other thing we have to tell everyone about... You know Radiothon. Yes, Radiothon. RRR.org.au. Jump on board. This is this podcast should come out on the last day of the Radiothon Triple R's annual time when we ask people to subscribe or donate. It only goes for a week and a half, a bit, uh, and it's just a fantastic opportunity to join the Triple R community. Independent, broad-minded, inclusive community radio. Get virtually. You know, at the moment in the pandemic, it's incredibly hard. There's no sponsorship announcements. They're basically living off the smell of an oily rag, which is the support of the community. It's us, it's you, it's everyone who um, puts in, and you can subscribe or donate or both. It can be as cheap as you like, as much as you like, and you're part of the family. RRR.org.au. Jump on board. What do you got for us this week, Roberto? And when you jump on board, if you do like radiotherapy, like radiotherapy. Mate, look, <clears throat> in uh, the um, the kind of hour and a half since we recorded the interview, I went downstairs to make myself some lunch. <clears throat> and I just want to tell you about uh, two things that happened to me to prove about this concept, which I know you really love, called psychomechanical dysfunction. That is when you are distressed or agitated in your body or in your mind. It, you don't express it through your body like, you know, um, butterflies in your tummy or a headache when you're stressed. It's the things that are around you break down. So I bought so one it's of those your idea that the universe the, uh, is in tune with your stress and stuffs you up because yeah. you're stressed. Okay, tell us. I think it's a load well, of bullshit, but go on anyway. Well, just because you don't understand something, Stephen, don't diss it. So, hey, wait a second. How do you know I don't understand it or I understand it and still think it's bullshit? Anyway, go on. Go on. We'll argue all day. Because if you understood it, if you understood it, you wouldn't think it's totally bad. Anyway, so, you know those little, uh, pushy, those little pushy soap dispenser things? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Love them. You know, the, Although they're really yeah, so environmentally unfriendly. We're supposed to get rid of them. Anyway, go on. I know. I know. But it was hard convincing the kids to use soap all the time. Anyway. So I bought a couple of those and I was just trying to open it. I was like spending like 10 minutes going, just couldn't get the thing to come up. And I was like, Ugh. 
And I said to my daughter, look, your mum's really good at this stuff. Um, but Gabby, she was out doing something. So I said, go up and down. Eventually, Gab walks in. She goes, have you read the instructions? I said, no, don't read the instructions. <laughs> anyway, she goes, I think you're supposed to push down and turn anti-clockwise. Oh, push down. Push down, turn anti-clockwise. Bing! Bing! <laughs> comes up. Bing! The things come up. And the second thing that happened to me downstairs was I was, I think, okay, I'll make myself some avocado on toast with a bit of tomato sauce. Got the tomato sauce bottle out of the fridge. Squeeze the tomato sauce. Not coming out. Not coming out. I break out this this god-awful hard squeeze. And it shot out of the side of the tomato sauce bottle, across the kitchen and into the lounge room, all over the carpet. So let me get this straight. You believe that because you're busy or stressed or some reason, that the universe tricked you into not opening the soap properly and squirting tomato sauce on it. Whereas an alternative opinion might be that you're a bit busy and stressed and weren't focusing and concentrating and just basically couldn't do basic tasks like tomato sauce and soap. Mind you, I have to admit, I struggle to get that soap open every time too. And whereas if oh. you do look at the top, there's a little arrow. But you know, <laughs> it says anti-clockwise push down. But oh. I've tried. I've tried to go back to go back to soap. I've bought all these cakes of soap, yeah. so I'm trying to get rid of those damn things. Well, hey, yeah, uh, what about on a COVID front, man? I, know, I mean, I know well, me your you, idea. Um, yeah. I'll, go on. Well, no, I was going to say that uh, I went for a walk this morning with Dr. Shivago down by the uh, sea. We live in St Kilda, and then. Um, my uh, a couple of hours later, uh, Talia, my daughter, came back and she said, "You know, there are police on the road um, down uh, in St Kilda checking people to make sure that they're not five kilometres outside of you know their district." And I was thinking to myself, you know, if you would have told me, Steve, let's say August last year, if you would have said, "Next year, Rob, you won't be able to drive more than five kilometres outside of your zone," I mean, unless you've got special reasons. There'll be a curfew at 8 p.m. at night, and you're pretty much not going to be able to see any people that you know, sort of, you know, family members, stuff like that. I'd say, come on, no way. And yet we've accepted it. And I think it's, you know, we on the whole, I think, you know, we as Victorians have just accepted this is what we have to do. It's just become the kind of new normal. Yeah, it is really interesting, isn't it? You You've know, got some figures, don't you, about well, this? Well, I do. I've got some figures. But, you know, I just want to begin by saying, you know, though... I've been saying since word dot of this thing that I feel very uncomfortable about this because, you know, and I think, and I've tried to figure out what it's all about. You know, a few times I've sort of said that, you know, I'm more worried about um, government overreach. I'm more worried about international strife and dysfunction as a consequence of the pandemic than I am about catching a respiratory infection. And uh, there's a whole lot of reasons. I've tried to figure it out because when I speak to my mates, most of my mates come from a point of view of, they're all doctors like you and I, and they come from the point of view of, I've got to do everything to protect our community and the vulnerable people and limit the number of deaths, which I totally agree. But for me, you know, having sort of worked on and off in infectious diseases most of my life, you know, jumped straight into HIV and worked in there as a psychiatrist. And I've seen patients on and off wearing PPE my whole career, all sorts of people with TB, all sorts of infections. I've never really been that fussed or scared of infections. So for me, the fear of the pandemic is not the fear of catching COVID. I honestly, I might be having my head in the sand. I might be an idiot, but I'm not overly worried about that. I'm much more fearful of government overreach, of police states, of the Americans fighting with the Chinese, and, you know, we're on a hair trigger for nuclear war, it seems to me, for the last five years. And I'm much more scared of them pressing a button than I am of, you know, and I get that th- these are all things that we're weighing up. And, and as I say every time, and I want to stress it because I don't want people writing into me saying I'm inconsiderate, but it's not, you know, I do, 
of course I follow the team approach, but I believe we should have open debate and consider what the issues are because I'm not convinced an 8pm curfew decreases numbers. Some of these things I'm not convinced about and I'm scared that there's a little bit of overreach. However, you know, I'm just not sure. Mm-hmm. Do you know, when we listen back to this podcast, I think you will hear that for some reason technology, again, psychomechanical dysfunction, has altered your voice and sped you up. It's actually quite interesting because you know, it's quite hard for me to tell if you're just speaking fast because you normally speak really fast or whether it's a technology that has gone, that has accelerated. Eh, we do we'll seem hear. to have a bad line because you sound yeah. funny to me too. But I'll slow up. Yeah. Yeah, also, but, you know, I've been thinking too, you know, because we talked a little bit last week about the Vice Chancellor of Melbourne Uni, Professor McCuskill, I think his name is. He wrote that article about how we have to get used to living in a pandemic and, uh, you know, some of the issues around that. And, you know, and I sort of tend to, I, I tend to fall behind him a little bit. You know, I, I do think we have to, you know, we can't stay in lockdown for another year, I don't think. And um, yet we do know where, you know, realistically, even if we get a vaccine, it's not going to be widely available and distributed amongst the community in under a year. And, and I, just don't, you know, I just don't believe we can stay like this. I think we have to have a change in attitude. Mm. However, Victoria does have a survey. Figures. Figures. Yes, there is a survey Figures. on this. So I read this in the Age Tell this me morning. the facts, man. Yeah, so Roy Morgan released a, um, a survey this week where they interviewed a whole lot of Victorians about what's going on. And, you know, most people are on your side. Most people agree with the restrictions. So nine out of ten people support uh, um, the wearing of masks. Seven out of ten support the restricted movement to within five kilometres. The least supported aspect is the support for limited family visits, you know, that we're not allowed to visit family. Only six out of ten support. Uh, that, but that's still the vast. That's still well. It was fifty-seven, almost six out of ten. So that's very still tough. the majority. And of course, the people who are pro, you know, all these tough restrictions will quite rightly point out that it's clearly working. For the first time today, our cases in uh, you know whatever it's been about seven or eight weeks are below a hundred. We're down to about our, our case number today was about ninety-four. So we're actually going incredibly well. And I'm actually fine personally with the lockdown. I don't have any big, you know, I'm fine with it. I'm just scared about the overreach. I'm scared about things like government saying I want another twelve months. I'm scared about the implications in countries where you know political despots will use this pandemic as an opportunity to increase control. I think these are tough questions. I cannot imagine that, Steve. <laughs> I just no. no I, look, I have the same worries as you. Yeah, look, we've all got our worries. And I think it's, it's one of those things where it's kind of like a week at a time so far because, mm. you know, it's, it's, we're, we're not playing to any rule book. We're just trying to figure out things as they go. And look, as you and I both said, our governments are doing the best that they can. And, you know, I'm pretty satisfied with the way things are going so far. So time for that Noel. brings us time to a junction. It brings us to a juncture in our show when we are going to speak with Professor Noel Woodford. He'll join us in about two seconds. Let me just remind you again, he's the director of the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine and the head of the Forensic Medicine Department at Monash University. Let's let him join the conversation. Independent Melbourne Radio 3RRR. And joining us now is Professor Noel Woodford. G'day, Noel. How are you? All right. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me on. G'day, Noel. Rob, hi. Very <laughs> nice of you to join us on this uh, Saturday morning. We always like to timestamp. We'll have probably have done it already in our intro, but it is Saturday morning. Oh, it's actually gone into the afternoon. It's one o'clock. Look at me, how time flies. Hey, Noel, why don't we get the ball rolling with telling us a little bit about the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine, or as we like to call it, VIFM. VIFM. What yeah, is it? VIFM or VIFM. We're in South Bank, and we've been here for 
bit over 30 years now. I mean, it, it's an interesting story about the way this place was founded, but, but it has a bit to do with Azaria Chamberlain, whose disappearance was 40 years ago last week, really. And um, as you know, she went through, uh, her mum at least, went through a number of different hearings, colonial inquests and trials, and her defence counsel, a guy called John Phillips, who ended up being the, um, the Chief Justice in Victoria, really lamented the quality of forensic evidence presented at the trial and, um, and vowed that uh, Victoria wouldn't have to suffer the same fate. So, you know, that was, that was part of the ingredients, as well as Vern Plukan, who many people of my medical vintage will remember from forensic medical talks. Uh, he uh, he uh, yeah, had that book too. You know, the main way I remember him, there was some book on forensic medicine we all had to have at university. And it was this hardcover, cost about 200 bucks. It wasn't that big, but it had these outrageous pictures. The one that still I dream about is a picture of a body that had been run over by a speedboat. So yeah. it had all the propeller, like cut, diagonal cuts going all the way up the body. It was horrific, but uh, that's I, quite I amazing. So imprinted in people's heads, really, People have owned that book. But, yeah, it's really, I mean, he was instrumental in getting forensic pathology and medicine going as a uh, professional discipline in Victoria. Absolutely. And so, because you, you, I also introduced you previously before you joined on as the head of the Department of Forensic Medicine at Monash. So is that where the main Department of Forensic Medicine in, in yeah, Victoria so, is? So it's a department at Monash University in the School of Public Health, but it's based here at the Institute. So if you like, it's our academic arm. It's the, it's the area in which we concentrate our teaching and training and research. Um, so, the complementary so element to that in the Institute is its service work, and we can talk a bit about that. So what are your main roles? What are the main roles of VITHAM? Well, we're an institute of forensic medicine, so um, I think it's important to remember about what this institute replaced. And, and once again, if you're of a certain age, you will remember the cream brick building in Flinders Street Extension that used to be the, the Melbourne Public Morgue next door to the coroner's court. Okay, um, I've got no recollection. Rob, do you remember this? No, it was, it was a terrible place, and, and no, even worse for families who had to turn up there to identify loved ones and, and could hear and sometimes smell things going on next door. It was just revolting. Anyway. But uh, there must be a whole life to people who understand this stuff. See, I've just never even thought of it. And if I knew there was a, it's, there was a morgue, I, I, as a kid, I never would have gone near there. I don't, you know, I mean, it's not the sort of place someone will go on like a Sunday tour like the zoo. You won't go, you know, let's walk past the morgue. You know, it's, an in, it's a key part of any society, a morgue and a process of investigating deaths. But I don't think it's something that we all think about on a day-to-day basis. Well, death investigations are... Uh very important part of what we do, if you like, it's core business. So we've got a number of other areas of um, activity here. Clinical forensic medicine, looking at live people, for instance, victims of assault. Uh, we have forensic sciences in toxicology, of course, and molecular biology, looking at the you know molecular reason why some people die, and also identification, DNA. And we run a tissue bank as well, so people know about organ donation, but we have a tissue bank here, so with the permission of next of kin, we can take tissues from... Uh, deceased people for implantation into others, heart valves, tendons, bone, and skin. Do you ever watch TV shows, Noel, like CSI and go, nah, that couldn't happen that way, or nah, we don't do things this way, or... Uh, Look, I don't see that many of those shows, and I always get asked this question, you know, and I think you asked me once whether I'd watched Quincy. Yeah, um, I did. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've asked you that previously in interviews. Because I think of you as Quincy ME, Quincy Medical Examiner from back in the day. Young people won't remember it, but Rob and I grew up watching that, didn't we, Rob? He looks nothing like Jack Klugman, I've got to say. <laughs> uh, look, I mean... But he, sorry to interrupt you, Noel, but I just I just need to tell um, Rob, he doesn't look like Jack Klugman, but he does go to court and give evidence. He does go to death scenes. He can get called out in the middle of the night, Noel, I know this from the past, and he does live on a yacht um, permanently. Actually, 
One of those three things is incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't live on a yacht. Okay, I admit it. But you should. You should live on a yacht. Yeah. Anyway, Nola, I interrupted you, but that is all true. You do all of those things, don't you? We do. Yeah, well, I, yes, I do all of those things. But the Institute, I think the thing that surprises people when they come here is just how modern and sophisticated the setup is. It's not what people's conception of a public mm. military would normally be. And, and that's really important for families who need to come and identify loved ones here um, if they haven't been identified in the community. I think mm. it's as good as we can make it. And, you know, we've got the government to thank for that, for providing us with a great facility. It's the best one in the country, I think. Can I, and can I also point out, because I, I know this from chatting to you for many years, some of you, I don't think, I should point out that Noel and I have known each other since university days. But uh, another thing is that your institute provides support for the whole of Australia and sometimes internationally. Like I know, for example, you've been over to help with, I think it was, you went to Bosnia or somewhere, didn't you, Noel, to yeah, help with exhuming, exhuming bodies. And, and of course, you guys help all over Australia, yeah? Yeah, and, and that in turn, and also overseas, but that, that help in turn is reciprocated. So at the time of the bushfires in 2009, for instance, you know, we were confronted with something that we'd always planned for um, and hoped never to see, and that's the, a number of dead bodies all of a sudden being or needing to be uh, identified and looked at from a medical legal perspective. Um, we had 173 deaths in bushfires, mm. um, and that had issues that resonate today in terms of planning for the COVID uh, crisis. So, you know, the things that we planned for about the bushfires, which revolve around, you know, increasing our body storage. In those days, we only had storage for about 90 people here. These days, after a significant redevelopment, we've got storage capacity of about 270. But, you know, forefront of my mind when COVID started was, what would we do if we were confronted with scenes like in New York? And I think some early planning suggested that we might have a lot of fatalities. Mercifully, that didn't happen because there were lots of very good public interventions that um, that slowed the progression of the virus. But, you know, what would we do if we were confronted with hundreds of dead people a day? And um, you know, we've only got a limited capacity here, but uh, that made us start thinking about, you know, in, a, in association with the Departments of Justice and Health and Emergency Management Victoria and the police, you know, what would we do about increasing our storage capacity and what would we do about um, storage capacity elsewhere. So there's a lot of really good planning that went into this and, and so far, fingers crossed, we haven't needed to uh, implement it. Storage capacity elsewhere? I mean, tell us about that, Noel. Um, well, we, we would only have a certain amount of space here. Um, you know, I don't want to alarm people, but, you know, when the thinking is to how many people could we possibly store, we could modestly expand our capacity on site for about 180 bodies in addition to what we have. But yeah. if we were confronted with more one, Let's say there was um, um, a terrible plane crash, for instance, and we yeah. were confronted with five, six hundred bodies. Um, that would be well beyond our capacity. So we'd need to look at somewhere else yeah. for a storage facility, basically keeping the bodies cool and in a good condition until we can get to examine them and identify them. And is there something, uh, there must be uh, additional uh, processes and I guess concerns when you're dealing with an infectious disease. Tell us about that, how you take account of that. Yeah, so, I mean, it's worthwhile casting your mind back to the Ebola crisis uh, of a few years ago in Africa, and that made us turn our minds with the Department of Health and Justice about how we'd manage, not so much an Ebola outbreak here, but how we'd manage people who came back into the country and who subsequently turned out to have Ebola. And that might be that they died from it in the community or died in hospital with this disease, or, you know, since we're a forensic facility, let's say they had Ebola, but they, something else happened to them, like they were a murder victim, for instance. You know, how would we deal with those sort of complexities? And so we, we, we developed a plan then. Um, uh, and, and it's also worthwhile thinking about that Ebola is really essentially a natural disease. So we wouldn't necessarily 
see those cases report to the uh, be reported to the coroner system simply because they had Ebola. You know, the coroner's uh, system is dealt uh, is uh, designed to deal with deaths that are you know um, accidental, homicidal, um, suicidal, uh, not obviously natural, or deaths of vulnerable people in institutions um, uh, such as mental health facilities, but. Going back to COVID now, um, you know, COVID deaths are really natural causes deaths unless something else supervenes. So if there's allegations perhaps of neglect or mismanagement, you know, um, anybody can report a case to the coroner. Uh, but in the normal course of events and with the COVID uh, deaths, we really haven't seen that many of those reported to the coroner and have to, having to be dealt with by us. So when they do come to you, do you mm-hmm. have to take infection control prevention measures? In other words, can you catch COVID off a deceased person? Well, in theory, you can, but I think it's important to to make the point that I, I haven't seen a um, a uh, report so far in any of the professional literature that indicates that a, a mortuary technician or a pathologist has caught COVID from um, a deceased body. That said, we treat all bodies that come in here as potentially infectious. You know, we, we, we take all comers. So there are people with um, HIV and hepatitis C, for instance. Uh, so to protect our staff from those uh, diseases, there's... Um, universal precautions are taken. Everybody wears you know, appropriate cut-proof gloves and P2 masks and disposable gowns, etc. Uh, what we don't have at the moment, but we're looking at getting very soon, is a so-called uh, physical containment three facility. So somewhere where it's a better isolated facility um, in terms of dealing with infectious cases, potentially infectious cases. But in any event, um, you know, we treat all cases as potentially infectious. No, I, I remember reading somewhere that Ebola is especially difficult. I mean, it's difficult in a whole range of for a whole range of issues, but it's difficult because um, a deceased body can still be quite infectious with the, with the bodily fluids. Whereas I had I'd understood that COVID not so much. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So yeah. so Ebola is a, a bloodborne disease and it's um, very infectious just by exposure to body fluids with um, COVID. I'm not, once again, I'm not an infectious diseases clinician, but that um, when a body's not breathing and not exhaling particles, um, yeah. you know, the risks are significantly lowered. And, you know, even with minimal PPE, management of bodies presents very low risk for um, people having to, to deal with those cases, including funeral directors. Mm-hmm. You know, you... I'm surprised you don't ring me for advice occasionally, Noel, because I watch a lot of television. And at the moment, I'm watching a show called Jack Ryan, and I think they're using bodies that have died from Ebola that they stole from a, um, a grave to try and infect other people. It's what the terrorists are doing. So, look, if you need any advice, give me a call. Hey, but on a, on a, uh, on a slightly more serious note, so in, what sort of pre-preparation did you do? So, And the reason I ask this is around pandemics. You know, we've all been hearing that, you know, some countries had done lots of planning for pandemics like Vietnam and some others, um, and other countries have done very little other than cursory discussions at various stages because I don't think any of us really appreciated how significant it could be. You know, what happens? Like, in the in the real world of an organisation like yourself, you know, had you had sessions or times when you'd sort of thought, you know, what would a pandemic look like and how do we prepare? Or yeah, we, so we do desktop exercises in terms of uh, planning and, and working out who would be responsible for what element of management of multiple deceits. I mean, I think it's there's a threshold issue, at least from my perspective, about whether the cases are coronial or not. So I think that 
in most people might most people's minds at the start of this um uh, was that oh well the coroner system or the VIFM would be dealing with these cases but that wasn't necessarily so because as I said a lot of them would be natural causes deaths but since we are well, we have expertise in dead body management um we were the pe people that um were turned to 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 uh discuss with you know how we'd manage this crisis you know so we do a lot of planning we do a lot of planning for mass disasters anyway whether they're man-made or um natural disasters and so we're as i mentioned you know pretty well skilled up in terms of how we deal with catastrophes that slowly unfolded or or massively get dumped upon us with a, a huge number of bodies all at once so it's interesting, isn't it, when you say coronial case, because I don't think most people will quite realise. So the coroner, you know, investigates, um, you know, any deaths that, as you say, are, are accidental or there's any problems or suspicious circumstances or certain, you know, deaths like in institutions. Um, and so the coroner takes an interest in problems from time to time where they're concerned that things aren't being done well. It's one of the many layers of investigation we have in our society. So has the coroner expressed any concern at this point about how we're managing COVID or expressed any particular interest in areas of they want to take a look at as time goes forward well well i should probably let the coroner speak for themselves I, I do know that um you know we have had cases reported to us where there have been concerns about management of, of the deceased and um coroner takes those reports very seriously whether or not the body needs to come in here that's another matter but the coroner has taken an interest in in um in COVID deaths in particular we should also say that uh uh, we've begun testing all bodies at the time of admission to the institute. And it's um, interesting to me that we found a number of bodies where uh, the cases were asymptomatic, or at least there were no mm -hmm. symptoms reported, and turned out to be COVID positive. So, you know, that's a concern, I think, too. That's really interesting. See, the area I was thinking of, and you feel free not to comment on this, but um, I think a lot of us in the community are concerned about what's going on in aged care facilities. And, uh, you know, that's that just strikes me as one of the areas where the coroner would obviously... Uh, want to shine their flashlight. Anyway, I, anyway, I'll leave it at that because I know you're not allowed to com comment on too much. Oh, and it's got a very important role and we assist in that role in death prevention or death or similar death prevention. And to the extent that there've been concerns raised, I think these were public concerns about um, uh, neglect or, or um, suboptimal treatment. I know that the coroner has an interest in those deaths. Hey, Noel, could I just understand the different people involved in uh i guess a coronial investigation there's the coroner who is a, a, a like a judge is that right yeah coroners yeah. are, are judges so they're sort of equivalent to, to magistrates really although the the state coroner is a judge of the county court and then there's they're you, they're lawyers. Mm -hmm. yeah they're lawyers which is different to Quincy because Quincy was a medical examiner slash coroner. So I think that's confusing for yeah, people like in America. me. Yeah. Whereas and whereas you're the medical examiner or the, 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 the doctor who then assists the coroner's court. So we're the medical arm, if you like, of yeah. the investigation process and, and the coroner's are the legal arm. And we both have our own pieces of legislation governing what we do. So in the Coroner's Act, for instance, the coroner's roles include uh, confirming the identity of the person mm. and then the cause of death and then making comments if necessary about the circumstances surrounding death. And we assist in all of those things. So when a body comes into the Institute and we get um, around 20 bodies admitted every day here, we get about 7,000 a year coming oh, through our facility. Sure. Of the 41,000 deaths in Victoria every year, 7,000 come to us. 
And when the person is admitted here, we turn our mind to things such as who is this person? Has identity been confirmed? And then we go through a process. It's a bit like a triage process of so-called preliminary examination. So everybody gets a CT scan from head to toe when they first come in here. We take blood for overnight toxicology analysis. So the next day I can, you know, I know the results of about 350 drugs that we can screen for. We do an external examination of the body. We review documentation. If necessary, we do things such as fingerprinting to give those to the police to confirm identity. We might need to do a DNA test to confirm identity. Um, and armed with all of that information, uh, we sit down with coroners every day and, and give them the answers to really two questions, whether or not we can give them a cause of death and whether or not we think an autopsy is necessary to assist them in their role. Can I just take, you know, this is a, a good moment in the conversation to ask, you know, how does a young boy running around at school kicking a soccer ball or a football or maybe a tennis ball all of a sudden become a, a, a director of forensic medicine? What? Because, you know, okay, so you went to medical school. I know that for a fact because... Well, I never wanted to do anything mates. other than medicine, so that's a start. And, you know, I was lucky yeah. enough to get into medicine and then... Um, you know, I was going down a surgical pathway and I was at the Austin, as you know, and, um, and really just taking the first steps towards a thoracic surgical career and, and, and in that um, got exposed to mesothelioma cases, actually. It was, a, it was a big interest of some of the surgeons there. And, um, and I liked the, you know, I liked dealing with patients, but I also liked the diagnostic element. And, and so that saw me down in the pathology laboratory a bit, talking to them about cases and then talking to families about the results of those tests. And, and then I sort of had a, had a, a sort of a, a light went off one day and I thought I really like the thought of pathology as a career. And I had a couple of friends who were a year ahead of me and, and they'd done pathology. So I, I went down that pathway and, and trained as a surgical pathologist. And during that training spent in those days, all registrars doing um, surgical pathology training had to spend some time at the Institute. So I did two weeks here. In those days, we came to the Institute with a lot of autopsy experience already. There's, there's hardly any autopsies done in hospitals anymore, but, but I'd done a lot before yeah, I back came. Back in the and, day, it was common. Yeah. And, and I loved the fact, I loved the way that, um, I loved the discussions around cases. I loved the fact that families were central to those discussions and we engaged with them and fed results back to families. So it was almost like medicine um, as traditionally practiced, but with that problem solving component to it as well. And I really liked the fact that there was a collegial atmosphere as well. And we sat down, we discussed cases every week. And then there was a, the healthy stress of going to court and having to defend those findings as well. So it was, to me, it was the full package, really. I just find, you know, I find your job one of the most interesting jobs ever. And, and again, I've told this anecdote before, but not on Shrink the Virus. Um, one time I went to visit Noel in Leicester. Was it Leicester? No, I was in Sheffield. Sheffield, Sheffield mm. in um, England. He was working there in the you know equivalent service over there. And uh, I arrived, I think, on the train from London. And Noel came to pick me up and he said, look, sorry, Steve, but uh, I've got this lecture I've got to go to. Um, but I'll be free in an hour or two, so I'm just going to drop off the cafe. And I said, no, 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 take me with you. Take me with you. And I go in and I sit in this lecture that to this day, I would have talked about this lecture on radio about 30 times over the last 20 years. Um, one of the most interesting lectures I've ever been to, because it was from this amazing guy from the US who ran this basically farm where they, I don't know, they buried bodies and they left bodies in various states all to gain scientific evidence about the effect of the environment so that when they're investigating murders, they could say, this one died six weeks ago because it's been left in leaves and the decomposition's gone this far and I can't, don't even know if I'm remembering it correctly, Noel. It was 
it was decades ago that I went to that lecture. Do you remember it though? You remember that? Yeah, I can oh. remember the lecture. There's there's a very similar facility um, in uh, far western Sydney these days as well, and so. There's a lot of interest. It's run by, a number, or it's got a, a number of different stakeholders. We're one of them um, who have an interest in so-called taphonomy. So, so what happens to bodies in the post-mortem period and over extended periods of time, and, and you know when they're exposed to environments and, and insects, etc. What was so, it called again? Not taphonomy. Taphonomy, yeah. So, um, so there's the, the, the I think that I can't remember which state it's in in America, but you know it's called the body farm there. It's called the after facility here. It's an acronym. I can't remember exactly what it stands for, but it, but um, it's run out of the University of Sydney, and they um, and they and they uh, deal with bodies who or people who've donated themselves to science and um, and bury them and uh, get exposed to various environmental conditions. Hey, Noel, when you eventually decide you want a quieter life and you want to slow down. Have you ever thought of writing crime novels? Because you'd, you'd have like the front seat to all that sort of stuff. Oh, I think I'll leave that up to others, I have to say. Case Carpetta, who's the, well, who's the one that wrote those books? Uh, the, I anyway, Google that, while I you're think, talking, say it again. Yeah, um, the woman who wrote those wanted to come and talk to us uh, at one stage, and I never really heard from her after that. But no, I don't think so. I'll leave that up to others. Hey, so back to COVID. How is um, Vifim going with COVID? You know, like how's the staff managing? You know, you're going through the same stresses that we're all going, having to work from home and everyone anxious about um, what's going on and working twice as hard and all the rest of it? Well, I mean, it's, you know, we're, we're coping as other people are, but we've got to, we've got to keep going. And, you know, we, the, the staff who can work from home do work from home. It's, it's forced us to be a bit creative. So pathologists, for instance, have taken their microscopes home. They can look at slides at home and... What? They've taken that? What, 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 but those things weigh about 100 kilos, don't they? Oh, they've got smaller versions they've, they've bought to, to, to go home with. and um, They take their microscopes home? That's really oh, yeah. taking your work home with you. Wow. Well, yeah, they don't take all their work home. Clearly, we need to do the autopsies here. But... <laughs> But um, so they can do it quite a bit of time in terms of uh, case completion as well. And, and in other areas, uh, for instance, clinical forensic medicine, you know, that we, we've actually there got into the realm of telemedicine to a greater or lesser extent. So mm -hmm. assessment for a fitness for interview, for instance, some of that can be done remotely. Mm -hmm. um, and also uh, with, let's say, the toxicology labs, for instance, we've got teams of staff coming through so that if the worst happens and one of our staff gets infected, we haven't lost all of our staffing. Uh, but you know, clearly the work needs to keep going. We haven't really seen a diminishment in the uh, the number of case admissions, um, or the number of toxicology tests, for instance, or the number of clinical forensic medicine tests. You know, it's all been pretty much the same, but just done a bit differently. Are and, other deaths decreased because of lockdown? Like, are we having less deaths from all sorts of other causes? Do you know, or is it too early to say? Probably, and this will all be anecdotal, but you know, we'll have to we'll have to look at it retrospectively. But probably fewer alcohol-related or interpersonal violence deaths related to alcohol, for instance, you know, because the pubs are shut and, and, um, and that sort of thing. The interesting thing for me is um, what's happening with domestic violence cases. You know, we really, probably our, our exposure to them in terms of where we're called to do examinations hasn't changed terribly, but, but I hear reports from the police that um, their involvement in cases has increased. Mm. So, so there, there's a problem that's still going on out there and perhaps even magnified by the fact that people are in shutdown, but um, we're not necessarily seeing that at the moment. And how are the staff coping? You know, how, are you doing extra stuff to support your staff at this time? Yeah, we are. I mean, I think because we've got probably about 70% of our staff at home at any one time, it's, it's, you know, we're really impressed upon managers, the need to sort of keep in touch, touch base with them. Uh, that, that said, uh, 
uh, we have a very strong peer support network here. So, so if staff are struggling, you know, they know who they can go to immediately. We also have employee assistance programs that actually is, um, it's probably the best one we've been involved with for a while. So, so that's actually been taken up well by staff and, and just, just those small things and keeping tabs on people and making sure they're doing okay. Noel, this is a, a question we ask everybody on, uh, on Shrink the Virus. It, uh, I usually prepare it by saying, take a deep breath, find your happy place. I'll do my best. Right. <laughs> and the question, it's a pretty simple question. It's, what are you doing now, either professionally or privately, what are you doing now better than you were doing, say, eight months ago before the pandemic and that you want to keep going with? Well, gee, I... Um, right, where to start? I think I'm a bit more disciplined in terms of quarantining my time for exercise, for instance. You know, I get up every morning at five and walk the dog. So that's one thing. And the other thing is just um, finding a centred place. Like I don't wear, you know, I don't, I don't listen to music or, or podcasts, excuse me, on the way around. You know, I just love listening at the moment to the silence. I mean, it's really, really fantastic that time in the morning, listening to birds uh, when they wake up. Um, you know, I, I think it's forced me to be disciplined in terms of allocation of my time to different tasks. I mean, every day has got a certain sameishness about it, but just sort of um, subsuming yourself to the process is really just helping me get through it, I think. Can I just ask too, you know, COVID's one of the most important things that any of us in the health industry have ever gone through, obviously. And it's I've seen it raise so many people up to a higher level in terms of their professionalism, their enthusiasm, their dedication, the risks they're prepared to take. How do you feel personally going through, you know, you're in a key role, you're the director of one of the key institutions in the state. Do you feel a weight of responsibility right now? And how are you coping with that? Yeah, look, I think from a professional activities perspective i think we've got it pretty much covered you know we could we could always do better of course but we're engaged where we need to be we've got the plans in place i can't um think of the of the things that we're not doing properly there and in terms of responsibilities to the staff i take that really seriously you know they are you know that they're looking to me and the leadership team for support through this this crisis and 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 to the extent that we can we, we you know we try and provide that strong support we've got mental health training we deliver through managers to the staff we've developed a mental health strategy for our staff um we you know you know i do directors updates either weekly or, or or fortnightly and there's a mixture of sort of an email to all staff or try and do it online via zoom or, or teams um and, and get reasonable feedback about that so we're, we're engaged as much as we can be i think but but you know having said that i know that people are doing it tough and and additionally you know we've got uh you know, mercifully small numbers of staff who've lost relatives through this crisis, lost elderly relatives, and you know, and they can need support as well. Well, Noel, thank you so much for joining us on Shrink the Virus. It sounds to me like you're sort of taking it in your stride, and I know you've been in that job oh, quite a long time now, and so it's probably the sort of job where you really want to have, you know, been there a while and have all the key skills under your belt when, you know, the state faces something like this. So, uh, you know, congratulations to you and your team for, you know, all the work you're doing, and uh, it's been fantastic chatting to you and hearing about, that, you know, the perspective of the pandemic um, from the from the from the point of view of the Victorian yeah. Institute of Forensic Medicine. Thanks, my friend. Thanks, Noel. Thank you very much. Good to see you. 
So that was Shrink the Virus for this week with our very special guest, Professor Noel Woodford from VIFM. We uh, hope you enjoyed the interview. It's great fun to interview and a hell of a nice guy too. Don't forget to tell your friends about Shrink the Virus and don't forget to subscribe to 3RRR at rrr.org.au. We've got a Facebook page called... What's it called, Steve? What's oh, Shrink what the Virus or something called? like that. Just search it. Shrink the Virus and on Instagram, <laughs> same. And our Gmail, shrinkthevirus at gmail.com. And, and, and Gmail, we're all over social media. Um, don't forget to tune into Triple R and our own show called Radiotherapy at 10 to 11 on Sunday mornings. That's 102.7 on uh, 3 Triple R. As we mentioned, there's the Radiothron. And um, also, Steve's got a website called steveallen.com with lots of inf information on it. Yes, and uh, yeah, that was a good interview, you know, just to double back. I mean, I love Noel, <laughs> just to double back. He's uh, such a great guy. He's, you know, I don't know anyone in the world Isn't who doesn't it? like yeah. Noel. He's thoughtful, intelligent. He's got a wicked sense of humour, although he behaves himself when he's in public. You've got to get, you've got to get him into the pub. Um, but I really enjoyed listening to him. It's such so interesting when you hear about these parts of society that, you know, the key pillars of our yeah. community, you know, yeah. uh, like the whole forensic medicine approach to, you know, keeping our community safe and etc etc so interesting yeah. hearing how they prepare i do want to do the thank yous though for this show of course um all the people at triple r beck mia grace elizabeth michael who basically help us put together this podcast tighten up the recording whack it up on the website get it onto all those things that you listen it to those podcast catches like whatever they are apple or whatever the podcast catches i don't know what i what they're all called these days or of course you can listen to us on the triple r website anyway you must know that if you're hearing me say that so it's really quite defunct so the only other thing to say is goodbye for this week and i think we're seeing you again next week thanks for listening ciao you're listening to a triple r podcast discover more podcasts from triple r exploring science technology food books social issues politics and more to listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.